Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. We're a nonprofit in Western PA whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. You can find out everything there is to know about the Veterans Breakfast Club on our website, www.veteransbreakfastclub.org. On there, you can check out our upcoming schedule of both online and in-person events, trips that we have planned, sign up for our e-blasts, and also sign up for our free quarterly magazine. Uh, we hope to see you on one of our live live Zoom programs every Monday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. As for today's episode of The Scuttlebutt, I will have on Charlie Warner. Charlie is a veteran who, after his service, got into social anthropology. Um, this is a subject matter that is, I feel, very above my head, um, but he is currently doing some research over in Eastern Europe. His research is supported by the Research Foundation Flanders and the University of Leuven, uh, Belgium. Uh, he beams to me live from there to talk to me about, about this research, uh, which I can go to his website, uh, theveteranseclectic.wordpress.com, uh, and read you a bit here about what it is, because uh, we get a lot into sort of the history of the term veteran, what it means to be a veteran is in the realm of what he is researching. Uh, and from his website, the anthropological research and ethnographic fieldwork, he's exploring the eclectic voices and visualities of combat veterans in Southeast Europe and beyond. In essence, his research is striving toward, and this is from his words, striving toward more nuanced relationships between war veterans and the social sciences while interpreting and challenging dominant narratives emerging from the North Atlantic region. It's really a fascinating conversation that I got to have with Charlie. Uh, and we dove into a lot of different things, asking questions uh, about um, being defined as a veteran, what that means, the different levels of anthropological research, and the scale at which you are researching this. Um, if you've never heard of this type of research, this is a great place to be, uh, because I am, as we would call it, a noob in this realm. Uh, so I get to ask a lot of these interesting questions. Um, and as we get into the idea of this theme, I don't even know which questions to ask until we sort of found our way to those questions, which is a really interesting point that we make during this recording. Uh, please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. And you can always reach out to me, Sean, S-H-A-U-N at veteransbreakfastclub.org with any thoughts, comments, questions, or even concerns. Uh, I'd love to hear them. Um, thank you so much and enjoy the show. Joining me now on The Scuttlebutt is Charlie Warner. Uh, Charlie, we have some very interesting stuff to get into about uh, your doctorate. You're an anthropologist. Uh, you're coming to me from uh, Europe right now, correct? Belgium. Hello from Belgium. From Belgium. I, you might be the first person I've had on from that far away. So you're, uh, you're ticking that box for me, which is great. Welcome to The Scuttlebutt. I'd love for you to introduce yourself. I know we have a lot to get into. So uh, thanks for joining the podcast. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be able to engage with the platform and uh, be part of the uh, kind of the repertoire that uh, BBC is uh, putting together. But uh, yeah, so I, I am uh, living and working in Belgium, although I'm an American uh, veteran of the, of the Air Force, uh, explosive ordnance disposal. Uh, but now I am a uh, doctoral candidate in social anthropology at the University of Leuven in Belgium. So just uh, about uh, 20 kilometers or so outside of Brussels. Well, that's great. So Air Force, uh, what year did you enlist? Uh, 2000. It was from 2000 to 2007. So uh, initial six year hitch with uh, a slight extension to take a uh, take a follow on, as they say. Why did you decide Air Force? 
A uh, number of reasons. Uh, I'm um, fourth. Uh, I mean, it's kind of a longer story, so I'll try to make it a little shorter. I'm fourth generation military. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's been uh, between my immediate family and the extended family, uh, there's been service in Navy, Army uh, and Air Force. But uh, most directly for myself, my mother was also uh, is um, was in the, in the Air Force. She's retired now. Uh, and so uh, I kind of came up within the Air Force. I was a military brat and was raised at Ramstein Air Force Base. Mm. And um, so, yeah, considering my my dad was 30 years Army, my mom started out in the Army and then went to the Air Force. So it was kind of a um, uh, an informed choice to go with the, with the Air Force, kind of going with what you know, in, in a sense, perhaps. Did your mom have any advice for you as you went in? Uh, as an interesting question. So uh, they were both very excited about me speaking to Air Force recruiters up until the point that I decided to volunteer for EOD. And then uh, the excitement, especially on my mother's side of things, uh, <laughs> I'll say that, uh, that those conversations change quite quickly. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean... Anybody who thinks explosive ordinance, like, why would anybody want to do that? What what made your decision to go that route? Uh, well, you know, asking a 19-year-old uh, man his decision-making or his thoughts at that particular point in time, uh, I don't know how accurate of an answer I might be able to offer on that. Um, but, um, no, I had, the, uh, I had the aptitude tests uh, backing me up, so they offered me uh, several different jobs, uh, and that was the one that just kind of struck all the notes uh, uh, at that time uh, for me. And, um, yeah, uh, so uh, I have to continuously explain to people, especially here, uh, that aren't familiar with the American military, whereas, you know, you have to volunteer for the American military, no matter which branch, uh, but then you have to volunteer again to do EOD. It's uh, it's one of the few uh, fields where, you know, once you're signed up, they can't just order you to do it so it's uh it's always an interesting point of conversation with trying to unpack some of these things about the american military with my friends here in belgium or in southeast europe uh, definitely interested in diving more into that idea uh a little bit later on in our conversation about uh sort of different militaries throughout the world it's one of your interests correct well, uh, I would refine that uh, a little bit more and say the veterans of uh, in different parts of the world is really mm-hmm. kind of the, um, uh, in a very clinical way, saying the research frame of the, where my work and my research and my writing has taken me, especially with this uh, PhD research project. So I deal a lot with veterans mm-hmm. and uh, post-conflict lives. Um, uh, a, a number of different dynamics that all kind of intersect uh, into what we kind of term use the the word veteran and looking at how that word is used in different areas around the world, how different uh, ex-combatants, quote, quote, uh, connect with this term veteran and what it means for these different relationships between veterans, either in a very local or domestic setting or in a very much more kind of trans-regional or international kind of sense. And we're definitely going to get to that because there there are some very interesting ideas within that that I want to dive into. First, before that, I mean, it's a long way from explosive ordinance back in 2000. Yes. If we look back at 2000, that's pre pre 9/11 that you went in. How much that's, did that's correct? Yeah, how much did your 
military career shift? How much did the military itself shift after 9-11? And what, what was going on at that point? Uh, yeah, so that's that's a a very broad question to, to kind of move around within. So, uh, again, I was in the military uh, for all of about a year um, uh, when 9-11 occurred. I was actually at a te technical school in Florida, NAV School EOD, um, in the IED division, the IED training division, when uh, when we were first told about 9-11 and, uh, and all, all of that started to develop. Uh, so, I guess I'm not the best positioned to really reflect on some of the different changes, uh, as the especially with EOD, uh, from a kind of a pre 9/11 footing to a post 9/11. But I will say that uh, with the onset of Afghanistan and Iraq Part Two, there were clear shifts in the mission and the nature of EOD, where it. Um, really uh, evolved into kind of a tip of the spear type of analogy that is quite fond uh, of, of us speaking about uh, different uh, military forces. Uh, and so the equipment equipment changed, the funding changed, the tactics changed, the mentalities changed, the uh, a lot of different things kind of shifted. And I was kind of in the middle of some of these shifts um, where new equipment was coming out and new, um, uh, yeah, like I mentioned, tactics and things like that were, were, were emerging, but also our sense of self as EOD technicians that, um, mm, yeah, that, that, that our, our, our self-awareness was kind of shifting with that as well as that mission shifted with Afghanistan and, and Iraq and the transition to um, non-state actors and IED-based or um, improvised-based uh, warfare and combat and urban combat. So I'm a civilian, uh, and if there's any civilians that are listening in, they would hear like explosive ordnance, they've you know, maybe seen like Hurt Locker or something like that. How does your job in the Air Force compare, contrast to like the same type of job in the Army, Marines? Are, are there EODs in those branches as well? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I guess we should I should have uh, kind of... Um unpack that also a little bit as well but now eod is rather unique uh within uh, the armed forces now granted uh, my my knowledge might be a couple years dated i got out in 2007 so but uh as far as uh the the broad strokes go eod uh aka the bomb squad uh as is familiarly known in some circles uh each branch does have their own EOD forces, but we're all basically trained together initially by the Navy in uh, uh, an Air Force annex uh, in in Florida. And then after that initial training, then we go out to our parent services um, and there's kind of um, how you can say like on the job training that continues after the technical school for uh, specific weapons platforms or munitions that you spend a lot of time with or that are uh, kind of uh, predominantly relied upon by the different forces. Obviously, Naval EOD deals with uh, underwater training to an extent that the, yeah. the Army and the Marines and the Air Force do not. Uh, so I have to ask, were you the person that defused any any ordinance or, did, or were you the person directing the person that did that? What was your job within that uh, yeah, so I mean, it, it's it it moves around depending on the mission, and uh, you know, it wasn't uh, seven days a week. Uh, 
disarming uh, there was a lot of training there was a lot of um other missions that are all kind of under the purview of the eod to include like supporting the the secret service for vip protection um there, there was there, there's a there's a whole i guess the uh, some people kind of say like a whole portfolio of duties that kind of uh uh, EOD that uh, uh, that EOD takes responsibility for, and we work in three man teams, and mm -hmm. you know, so there's team leaders and there's team support, and these roles as you uh, get promoted and as your skill levels go up, then you know you're the guy in the bomb suit, or you're not the guy in the bomb suit, or you're the team leader having to deal with something. So one of the team members goes out in the in the, in the bomb suit. So a lot of it is very scenario dependent and dependent on your training level. Uh, but, you know, you, you come together in these very tight knit teams and uh, uh, three man, you know, uh, depending on the, the, the mission. Um, and so everybody's kind of switching between all these uh, jobs at any one time. Yeah. And um, yeah, and uh, there's a number of different ways that these play out in Afghanistan and Iraq and in combat theaters. Do you remember your first like mission to, to defuse ordinance? <laughs> Yeah, actually, oddly enough, that was some of the first missions that I engaged with, if we're going to use it in a kind of a broad sense, whereas in the United States was supporting uh, local law enforcement in the United States uh, in Salt Lake City, or uh, sorry, just to the north of Salt Lake City um, around Hill Air Force Base, which is my first duty posting. And so we had a, uh, a working relationship with local law enforcement and supporting some of their efforts in the county and uh, city and town levels. Uh, and so there was some like, um, um, how to say, haven't really thought about this in quite some time. Like uh, the, the police would uncover like a drugs lab or something like this and unidentified substances or what are identified as explosives to, it could be homemade, it could be um, uh, uh, something that's been um, taken apart and uh, mm -hmm. rendered uh, unsafe. Uh, and so th these were some of the initial things that I kind of encountered, but there's also an enormous bombing range outside of Hill Air Force Base, one of mm. several across the United States. And uh, so it was out there that you really start to handle some, uh, learn your way around explosives and you're doing some really large shots, as we call them, uh, burns or shots, uh, explosions, uh, they yeah. are usually generalized as. But uh, yeah, so, the, the, you know, there was a whole process of um, different training and experiences leading up to the, uh, and I, I, I'm an Iraq veteran, I'm not an Afghanistan veteran, uh, that uh, all this was was happening while Afghanistan was unfolding, while Iraq Part Two was 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 unfolding, and um, yeah, it's, I mean, I still remember. There's a, a number of poignant moments from Iraq, uh, where it was uh, supporting the team lead as he was in the bomb suit when we were first stepping out, boots on the ground for our our team. Um, uh, just north of Baghdad, uh, and that was. Um, the intensity of that kind of almost in a way 
overwhelms the the finer details that you that you can look back on uh, as the years go by. Uh, there's certain things that are still triggers the smell of certain different things that uh, still bring me back, and it's not altogether un, unpleasant in those early days. And there was also some poignant memories of the first times uh, mm -hmm. that uh, people were actively trying to uh, uh, take us out uh, using IEDs and uh, improvised rocket launchers as well. So that was a um, particularly poignant moment as well when the, the first time that happened just in the earliest days of our of our uh, rotation of our deployment uh, there oh, i imagine that you had to have some level of like nerves of steel we did, did it those first times did it was it as exciting was it terrifying did it you know was it just you know you've been uh... through so much training that this is <laughs> what you do a, a little column a a little column B, a little of the unknown of column C, perhaps. Uh, these are always kind of, uh, I mean, for me, there's some EOD technicians, some bomb techs that probably really thrive with these questions and uh, humility to the wind and just enjoy being able to uh, <laughs> ramble on about things. But I've always had a, a, a little bit of a step back from it where it's, I've always had a, a, um, a bit of a difficulty kind of on my own trotting out terms like nerves of steel or something like this. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's. Um, I think it's. It, I think a little column A, a little column B is a very realistic way to look at. It. In one sense, you have to have a certain mentality and a certain awareness of yourself and a certain uh, innate ability. Could be a bit of an overstatement, but I think that's it's one a way of saying it. But also, it's what's trained into you as well, and yeah. the interlocking relationships that you have with the rest of your team that enable that that to happen you know especially at that three-man team level or whatever uh frame that you that you want to um want to speak about or that you operated within so i mean i think it was those two things that come together that really uh can be projected out as nerves of steel or or, or become the or become the nerves that you need to be able to have uh to accomplish the mission and uh, watch right. each other's backs and uh get the job done get the the items disposed of or rendered safe or however it needs to be handled that's uh, strictly basically speaking from my civilian perspective of what that job is very different from me sitting here recording a podcast so i have to like try to put myself for those who've watched the scuttlebutt or listened to this before, they know I have a background in performance art and things like that. So I'm used to sort of putting myself in the mindset of what other people do, what their job was, things like that. So I have to imagine like, what did it take to be able to complete this mission and who you're working with and the environment you're in and all of these different factors and how your training sort of like, you know, made you laser focused on being able to like handle that situation with, you know, with the, you know, the ability and the skill that you have um, it's very fascinating to me. Um, but uh, flashing forward a bit, why did you decide to get out? It was a, kind of a mixture of things going on. It wasn't. A, it was not an easy decision in some regards. Um, I really, really loved being uh, EOD. I loved the people that I uh, that I was working with. Uh, uh, I mean. For the most part, yeah, you, you can't you can't love all your coworkers all the time, but uh, yeah, no, I, I really love the I really love the people that I was uh, that I was working with, uh, and I've I've mentioned it before that tight knit uh, kind of dynamic that comes with EOD, I found to be uh, unique even during my time in the service and since the service, it's it, that's that memory those experiences have been unique in that uh, team kind of. Uh, 
uh, since. And so, but uh, the thing that was kind of looming large and on the horizon for me uh, and and and, and the, on the for the future was uh, education. I really, uh, at that point, uh, I was already 26, 27. Uh, and so I was really wanting to start a full-time uh, um, uh, uh, academic career and uh, start off. And it was already kind of, um, <laughs> I came to find out later that the universities in the United States, at least at that time, referred to people like myself as non-traditional students. So mm -hmm. I was already outside of whatever uh, traditional academic arc had been established. And so that clock was ticking and I had some interests that I really wanted to follow up on. And um, yeah, so all of that, all of that came together at around about the same time where it was looking at my love for EOD, but wanting to move forward with uh, academics. There were some things with the military, um, senior leadership uh, and things outside external to EOD, but yet internal to the military that uh, were kind of... Uh, uh wearing on me uh, a bit when it came to leadership and the um understanding the people's uh the senior leadership's understanding of what eod went through as well as kind of non-eod air force chain of command that was um <laughs> yeah i don't want to go too far off that uh on onto that path but yeah there, there was some chain of command issues outside external to eod but internal to the military that were really kind of uh uh, wearing on a lot of us at that point in time. So that was definitely part of the decision as well. So what did you decide to get into academically whenever you left the military? Straight into anthropology, uh, and I haven't looked back. Uh, yeah. I have my bachelor's is in uh, from the bachelor. My bachelor's is from University of Utah. It's in uh, uh, cultural anthropology. And my master's uh, from the University of Leuven is in social and cultural anthropology. And my PhD will be in uh, social and cultural anthropology. What uh, drove that passion? Where did that start for this, you know, for anthropology? Uh, answering questions, uh, answering questions and the methods of answering questions. Um, a lot of the formative texts that I was reading as I was transitioning out of the military and looking at anthropology or just looking at academics in general, the social sciences in, in general, uh, the tone, the approach, the intimacy, um, the um, perspectives that were I was encountering within the field of anthropology were really connecting with how I had experienced the world and how things were kind of um, appearing to me and, so, and how they were answering or attempting to answer some of these questions that, uh, that I was starting to encounter. Now, and this also dates back to uh, childhood as well, where in retrospect, I was always kind of reading um, a bit above my level earlier on. And in retrospect, many of these texts were anthropolog anthropological texts. They might not have been used trotting out the big word anthropology or some of the other fancy million dollar world words that the anthropologists or academics like to use but they were in essence anthropological texts or ethnographies as, as i've come to know them now so all of that was kind of driving that uh and still is driving that uh that academic career progression and when i think of uh, anthropology, I don't necessarily think of the word intimacy. Can you define that a bit for what, how you perceived it? 
Yeah, so uh, anthropology, I mean, as as most basic clinical definition, it's the study of people. Uh, but it's it's that that's like the almost like the literal translation of anthropology. But it's 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 really looking at transformations. It's looking at life worlds. It's what's what it looks at what makes us human. Not so much the study of humans, but the study of what makes us human. And this works this this idea works at different scales you know there's uh at the global scale at the microbiological scale at cosmic scales and senses uh and so within anthropology you have a lot of flexibility and a lot of space to be able to move around and figure out what it is that you want to be investigating, what you want to be exploring, and how to reach out to that point, out reach out to those objects of exploration or objects of inquiry. And um, one of the things that anthropologists rely upon is uh, ethnographic fieldwork. And it's long-term. It's usually, in a sense, it's almost like being embedded, to uh, to borrow mm -hmm. from, an, uh, from a military term. You're embedded with a local force. You're embedded with uh, the locals. You're embedded uh, in a an environment, a sociocultural, geopolitical environment that might be uh, very similar or very very distant from what you're used to, mm -hmm. and you the, the the one of the mechanisms is one of the methodologies is is uh, spending as much time continuously amongst that embedded in that environment so that you become intimately aware. So uh, hence that use of that word, you become intimately aware of the perspectives, the subjectivities, the problems, the issues, um, the connections, the relationships that form those communities or those societies or those family um, units. assemblages, uh, family mm -hmm. units. Yeah, anthropologists, it's a very, very wide study, a field of study. So for, like, for example, for myself, with uh, uh, I work alongside veterans in Southeast Europe, veterans of former Yugoslavia veterans of the wars uh, in the 1990s between Serbia, Croatia, Bosnia, and Kosovo, and a little bit of Slovenia as well. And because I follow these veteran relationships, I go different places following these lines of communication, these lines of relation between these veterans in Southeast Europe. And you don't get access to that. You don't get these introductions. You don't become aware of these lines of communication or relations without having that intimacy, without opening yourself up, without embedding yourself there, without explaining your research and just spending time to figure out uh, what veteran life is like in, say, for example, rural Croatia or urban uh, Serbia or inter-ethnic connections between Albanians and Serbs uh, or the huge i don't even know the correct word to describe bosnia but whatever bosnia is <laughs> moving around with the veterans and being accepted as one of them not just as a veteran yourself but also just as an academic uh as yeah. somebody who wants to learn about what's going on well Boy, I, I just furiously wrote a bunch of questions based off of everything you were saying. So I'm hoping I can get to all of them. But I guess the first one on my on my list here is when you entered the military and the Air Force, was there some bit of this sort of underneath 
that was sort of bubbling this sort of i this passion for anthropology that you were embedding yourself into the air force and learning this new culture and these new people and this you know we always talk about at bbc about just how much of a culture change it is just to join the military so you know, was that something that you sort of had an idea of about back at that time at, at 19? No, I, can't. I think if I were to claim something like that, it would be a bit of an overreach. It would be a yeah. bit of an overestimation of the awareness I had as a 19 year old going into the into the military. Looking back, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I can't say that uh, I was seeing things through, uh, to use academic speak, the lens of anthropology, I wasn't seeing things through an anthropological lens. But in some regards, it, uh, looking back in the training and how we were preparing for uh, deployments in Afghanistan and Iraq. It was interesting to see when and where anthropology was popping up. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes it wasn't even being categorized as anthropology. It was just these different techniques and strategies and um, uh, data and observations that are, are part of anthropology that were being incorporated into military life. Uh, most famously, perhaps, is the and controversially is the um, uh, what was it? Human terrain uh, system HTS. H I want to say it was HTC. Uh, but uh, and so you know the different training modules that were coming out uh, from that. But also there was this um, sense of okay, well, we're trying, you know, as EOD, we're outside the wire, we're face-to-face -face with locals, we're having to figure out customs, we're having to figure out an awareness of local traditions and trying to figure out what would be out of the norm. And if something feels like it's out of the norm for the locals, should that be, is that something that, that we need awareness of and what that um might trigger what response that might trigger and something so you know there was all these kind of different little um uh dynamics of ethnography and anthropology that were kind of shot through some of these things when i look back in retrospect but yeah definitely much more of a cohesive and uh um i should say um problematizing uh you know i i definitely uh uh problematized some of these different issues as well uh, you mentioned that questions that were coming up as you were getting out of the military, going into anthropology. What type of questions were you mulling over at that time? Um, you know, again, we've talked on the scuttlebutt a lot about transitioning out of the military, how that changes you, how that's an, another sort of shift in life. Uh, but I, I'd be interested to hear what type of questions you were kind of developing at that time. Part of it was looking at what anthropology was saying or had said uh, in the past about these interlocking concepts of uh, conflict, post-conflict, and peace processes, and how um, things were transforming or not transforming, in a sense. And that, that's, a, that's a big buzzword for anthropology, for social anthropology, is uh, transformation, future transformation. You could kind of call that a, a core tenet or a core directive for anthropology, and that's affecting some kind of looking at the present and trying to figure out how to affect some kind of transformation towards uh, a future, multiple futures, and trying to figure out what that might look like and how to make those transformations happen. And I, I really that really appealed to me when I was looking out at um, 
making my own transition from the military into academia and where I wanted to be going and the kind of the topics and the issues that I wanted to be dealing with. And a lot of my questions were future oriented. And that's one of the things that I really came to realize about anthropology. Um, but again, it was also the way that anthropologists asked their own questions. So mm -hmm. it was, it, I was given the freedom in a sense, to form my own questions. And then instead of just looking at the answers as number sets or pie charts or these wonderfully complex uh, graphs that the sociologists and some of these other social scientists use that are damn near hieroglyphics to me. And I, I couldn't, I never really saw people being reflected in some of those uh, papers or those responses or those uh, conclusions, uh, as it were. But anthropology was much more of representation, subjectivity, uh, and having the ability to you may not always know the question you want to ask until you're a little ways down the road. Mm -hmm. And with anthropology, that there was nothing strange about that. And I, I guess in a way that kind of mirrors EOD as well, because, you know, what you're told at the beginning, you do that long walk in the bomb suit, what you find down there at the end or the the scenario, the situation might change while you're in progress. Somebody mm -hmm. might shoot it, start shooting. I, uh, secondary devices might be found, you know, so these situations, these uh, these operations develop. And, you know, it's, uh, that was one of the things that I really kind of appreciated about anthropology was you may not know the question you want to ask, but you're could start working towards it and then figuring it out. And th that's really where I ended up with working with veterans and working alongside uh, war veterans, not just in the United States and Belgium, but in Southeast Europe. Because uh, one of the questions I started to ask as my academic training progressed was, where are the veterans? Where are the veterans mm -hmm. in the social sciences? Uh, we had these very deep, wonderful, um, complex kind of um, explorations centering around the fam the units of family uh migrants um sexuality all these different types of things that make us human and uh and, and uh, allow us to be human and support us in this this sense of humanity and uh, in a sense of post-humanity uh, post-humanism as well but i was asking where are the veterans and why when i did encounter the veterans two things always kind of happened there the veteran was always in a clinical setting it was always the veteran was always seen with the medical gaze it was either a trauma case needed to be saved something to do with psychology um ba was mentioned quite frequently if at all mentioned it was always that you know so it, it was either that setting or the veterans are always some kind of secondary context uh a tertiary kind of thought where uh oh hey by the way when we were looking at something with post-conflict lives in Bosnia, we did meet a few veterans as well. But, you know, the veteran themselves weren't the actual focus of the research. They weren't treated in a holistic, fundamental manner of trying to figure out, you know, how they were using this word veteran, uh, what that meant in their local societies, their languages, the gender disparities or the, the the gendered use of the word veteran because veteran in, in, in English is um, a veteran is a veteran as a veteran. There is a gender construct. 
you translate that into Serbo-Croatian and it becomes a gendered word. So there's one pronunciation for male veterans and there's a different pronunciation for female veterans. Mm -hmm. And so what happens when only the male version is used in official language, commemorations, political speeches, and things like that? What happens to the female veterans that served right alongside the men in the 1990s? Yeah. You know, so all those things are happening with that. Uh just to contextualize this, the, what scale, uh, you were talking like cosmic global, what scale would veterans fall under in the idea of like, as you started to find where your niche was in anthropology, you know, they're sort of like, like you said, like a tertiary group within like the greater society. So what scale would that be? I mean, it's not so much that they're a tertiary group within society, but the academics definitely kind of engage with them in a secondary and tertiary manners where they're always something like contextualized or they're brought out when it's time to talk about a memory of something. You know, they're not active agents of their own present and making claims on the future and being active uh, full members of society. But I mean, to, to drive back to your question, I mean, for the moment, as far as I know, uh, veterans are not uh, cosmic uh, uh, in, in the sense at the, at this time. Now, we might look back at the space program of the 70s. Uh, you know, I have my space shuttle uh, behind me there where, <laughs> right. you know, a lot of that came out of the military and you, there were military veterans that were flying. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's kind of a weird way of saying it, I suppose. But yeah, in a cosmic sense, there were veterans. But uh, no, uh, uh, I work mostly uh, the way that I usually kind of uh, speak about my work is transnational. Uh, And in a a sense, this is a way for me to easily signal that um, there's not any one particular nation that I'm claiming has a uh, a corner on the veteran society of the 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 the, that the it's uniquely held by one particular nation. Mm -hmm. You have these uh, veterans exist in almost every uh, uh, nation state that we uh, care to mention uh, around the world. So it's, it it can be considered a global social structure, if you will. Mm -hmm. Now that is brings up a lot of different uh, questions and comments and contradictions for some academics and everything. So I usually kind of just keep it at the transnational. And uh, that allows me to kind of speak about the fact that um, even though I'm moving around between different countries, whether it's Southeast Europe or Belgium, (laughs) the North Atlantic, um, it's with the veterans that uh, form, you know, that social stratum uh, in each one of these societies that I'm kind of following along with and moving moving within. So, hence that transnational uh, type a type of um, context context for it. I would guess. Uh, I'm trying to develop what this question is because it sort of struck me the term veteran. Uh, if you look back at you know Rome, Greece, the, the the men coming back from battles were they called veterans? When did that term? When was that term invented? And it, you just you like you said you can't really say like you know that term is interchangeable throughout the world over history. So were they called warriors in different societies? How was how, how did it was it only America that has sort of laid claim to the veteran? This is what this is. Mm-hmm. 
Hopefully yeah, that makes so sense. A lot, there's, yeah, no, it does. And But there's a lot going on. I mean, because basically what you just asked in one question is what I've spent years trying to unpack and uh, um, explore and figure out how um, the different power dynamics, because power is a big thing for anthropology and power is a big state power, is a big thing for veterans, uh, for uh, veterans in post-combat and uh, in, in their post-combat lives uh, and everything. So... Uh, what you attempted to ask in one question is what I've spent years trying to write up an answer and articulate in a way that allows for a representation and a reflection of uh, veterans in a very cross-cultural, cross-social uh, sense. Where it's, um, I mean, yeah, in one sense, uh, there's a, a British historian who is, uh, he's knighted now as Sir Noel Malcolm, I believe. Um, uh, he is quite well known uh, as a, a historical voice for Southeast Europe, and he's written several dense texts that he calls short histories that could basically be used as body armor, to be honest. Uh, but uh, yeah, so he's written several different books, uh, historical books on uh, Southeast Europe, and in one of them he speaks about uh, the Roman roots of uh, the word veteran. As we as and the concept, the word and the concept as we know it now, where there's it's this signaling or this indicator of a post-war or post-service status, social status, and that comes from the the Roman uh, times, the legions, as as it were. And interestingly, this uh, he he finds this, he speaks about this because. Um, Apparently, the empire, the Roman Empire, um, was sending their veteran legionnaires to Southeast Europe, to Bosnia and, the, and these areas for their retirement. Uh, you know, it was basically a kind of a colonization slash control project, but it was also a way of rewarding and supporting the veterans coming uh, who had ser had served honorably presumably uh, or had completed some term of service and so they were given lands and rights in what we now call southeast uh, southeast europe so you know the notion of the veteran actually predates the american no notion uh w just within southeast europe by some distance uh, by some by quite a bit of time mm -hmm. uh but fast forwarding i know because there's a lot lot to unpack there but fast Fast forwarding, uh, we do have um, with the rise of the American military and our basically continuous wars, we have definitely, and let's not forget Hollywood as well, the force that is Hollywood, uh, we've definitely cornered the market on defining, describing, projecting, imagining the veteran, to put it in quotes, the the veteran within the social sciences, within world, the, within our concepts of society and everything. So the United States and to an extent Great Britain, Canada, that North Atlantic region where, you know, you have this very deeply held and uh, protected uh, hegemony when it comes to these certain narratives about war and veterans and peace and who's allowed to be called what and in what sense you know do you are you speaking about a veteran are you speaking about a former insurgent are you speaking about an ex-combatant are you 
uh, speaking about a terrorist, um, you know, and who's who then in a post-combat sense, who then is allowed to use this word veteran is often kind of referenced back to the United States. Mm -hmm. And we see this reflected in, in, in our own literature uh, as well, like, say, when we speak about the Vietnam conflict, the Vietnam War. Um, and this goes for any kind of war where uh, there's a certain power writing the history books and controlling these narratives. So it's not unique to America, Vietnam. You can speak about the French Vietnam. You can speak about this with uh, Belgium and the colonies, uh, um, um, Germany, uh, South America, with the insurgents groups like um, uh, in, in Colombia, for example. Uh, and everything. So when you have state power kind of dictating these uh, definitions and who's being allowed to embrace or embody the term such as veteran, that really becomes very interesting. And we seem to have a tendency to revert back to how the Americans use the word veteran. And uh, you see that um, a proliferation of that term. And I think one of the reasons uh, across different societies and across different languages and across different nations and I think part of that is a response to the prevalence of the American sense of the word veteran, as well as the Hollywood tropes, the Hollywood projections of the, the quintessential American veteran, regardless if it's Desert Storm, Vietnam, Afghanistan, what have you. Uh, so I think there's a couple of different things that are happening there that are kind of pushing people to want to adopt this word veteran to describe their own social status, their own social standing post-war, but also allows a connection to a larger imagined community of veterans around the world. So if you were to, hypothetically, you walk into a bar, Southeast Europe, somebody's not heard the term in English veteran before, and they tell you that they have served in the war, and you say, then you're a veteran, they would say, no, this is what we're called. What What is their term for it? Yeah, so, I mean, um, I guess an interesting and uh, uh, easy example of this would be uh, the Yugoslav partisans, for example. Uh, during the, the days, uh, the years of uh, Yugoslavia, the federal Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia under Tito, you had the partisans. You know, the partisans were um, uh, the... the um, created, fought for what would become Yugoslavia. Tito himself was a partisan. And so and in one sense, some people write about this uh, difference of, of terms and different use of words uh, based on culture or ideology, where veteran at that time, that was a very Western term, you know, and Tito was still uh, in the early days in the orbit of the Soviet Union, they were he would eventually split from the Soviet Union, but wasn't exactly running open armed into the American forces as well. And so there are these different legacies in terms like partisan instead of veteran, um, where there wasn't necessarily a need to signal a former or a past. He, he, he was a partisan then. He, we still consider him a partisan now. Mm -hmm. uh, but you had people's heroes for example, uh, rather than uh, veterans that were uh, being awarded um, uh, certain medals for combat actions or, or something else like that. And, you know, there's monuments to the people's heroes still scattered across Southeast Europe today. But no, it's it, it's it's an interesting question that comes up where it's like, okay, are we 
just because we're using different terminology and sometimes that's ideologically driven and sometimes it's linguistically driven uh are we still not yet still just saying the same thing yeah and uh you have these uh acts of translation that are not just language in translation where it's like um uh veteranka in croatian versus veteran in, in english but also what's happening uh within this word how the word is used in its society can also be can trigger a sense of translation and that's a lot of what my research is dealing with right now is kind of looking at this term and these concepts in translation with one another so that you're not projecting that american stereotype or uh forcing that american paradigm veteran paradigm mm -hmm. on these other cultures who have their own kind of ways of looking and speaking and acting and living as as a veteran that are very rich and they they they, they don't necessarily uh conflict with the american way of looking at things but they should be uh, able to exist at the same level and interact with each other without one kind of uh, superseding or being subservient to the other. Uh, does the term veteran in any of its uh, terminology throughout around the world as you've experienced it carry the connotation of positive or negative? You know, if, if you were to call someone a veteran in Bosnia, uh, is that still taken as, you know, like here in the United States, at least as where we've gotten to, not so much Vietnam era, but where we've gotten to a veteran is much more highly regarded. Uh, uh, is that carry the same connotation there? Uh, in a lot of places, yes. Uh, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it contained to just my experiences uh, in Southeast Europe. Um, there's others that are probably better placed, better positioned, and better informed to speak about veterans in some South American uh, countries, for example. Uh, Colombia is one that pops up frequently on my radar when speaking about veteran-centric research and everything. But there's others that uh, that can speak more to that. But it, so, like for for instance, in Croatia, uh, yes, it's um, there is a deep sense of um and it works across generations um uh, of respect for the veterans of the 1990s now where things start to get complicated is when people start talking about remembering the partisan veterans of world war ii so that's that socialist yugoslavia memories and narratives intersecting with the veterans of the dissolution of Yugoslavia in the 1990s and that bitterness and that inter-ethnic uh, conflict that was the dissolution of Yugoslavia. So there's a lot going on there. And so, so for some people, veterans themselves, Croatian veterans themselves of, of, that are usually about 10 years older than myself, so early 50s through out and up until the 70s and 80s, depending on how the obviously how old they were uh, when the uh, conflict started in, in the 90s. <laughs> Some of them still look back with respect and fondness of the uh, partisans and the partisan veterans. Other veterans in Croatia really do not. They uh, have no time for those veterans. Um, they have no time for what's called Yugo nostalgia, this uh, idea that things were better under Yugoslavia, uh, under the, that system of governance than they were today. Uh, and so there, there's a lot of things going on with that. 
And then that can be also brought into conversation with what's going on with Serbian veterans today in, in Serbia. And uh, one of the problems that the Serbian veterans really encounter that might be somewhat unique um, for American veterans to hear is that the veterans declare themselves veterans and they have to because the Serbian state itself refuses to recognize or admit that there was a war in, mm -hmm. in some regards. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's, it, it's a longer conversation to unpack, but this is one of the narratives that you encounter when you live and you work with Serbian veterans in Belgrade and in some of the rural areas where they're like, yeah, I was in this place or I was in this country or I was in this region fighting. I was served my conscription notice. Uh, so I reported for duty or I volunteered. And now the government is saying, well, we don't really consider that a war. And since we weren't at war or since we're not going to call that a war, we can't have war veterans, mm -hmm. you know? So there's a, again, it comes down to power, you know, it's, it's yeah. the state kind of eradicating a, um, or attempting to eradicate a, a segment of its population, a segment of its, of, of its veterans. And, um, yeah, this, this is a very, very, very high level, um, discussion of what's going on in Serbia, but uh, it, it kind of gives you some idea how that term veteran and the treatment of veterans in society is 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 is, is working. It just makes me, and this is maybe my own personal opinion, just makes me feel really bad for the people that were served conscription papers, served, and then received nothing. And that's just, that kind of just rubs me the wrong way, to put it mildly. Uh, yeah, no, and it's, it, it, it's 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 a problem that works at, on a number of different levels because you have those who were served conscription notices, files were lost, uh, they didn't receive the proper documents. You know, as things were happening, as the dissolution was happening. You know, we're talking about the uh, the collapse of a state. You know, yeah. uh, with this. You know, and. Any veteran in the United States or probably Belgium, or not probably, but Belgium, but even Vietnamese uh, veterans as well will probably have their own stories about like, well, I thought I had all the paperwork that I needed. I thought I had the right identity document that documented my period of service or I thought that injury was on the medical form uh, for my medical history and everything. That's not a unique narrative. And, you know, and that's something that the Serbian veterans were also reflect upon where it's like, okay, yeah, I know I served. People can confirm that I served, but I didn't have that one paper or maybe it was lost in a house fire. Um, time goes on, documents get lost. Um, a lot of this has not been digitized. You know, the, there there isn't a uh, the levels of digitization that we have uh, in other places in Europe or the United States. So many of these things are there's hard documents uh, stuck in an archive someplace that they may or may not have access to. That the archive not even might not even be remembered as being there in the basement of the building. Yeah, in, in some regards, you know. So it's uh there's a, there's a lot of things that, that are going on with that and um but it, it is an uphill battle for the Serbian veterans on a number of levels and that's just within their own country let alone the issues uh that Serbian veterans as well as Croatian and Albanian veterans face when it comes time to um 
talk about or account for or figure out responsibility for what happened. And this is falls under the umbrella of transitional justice and memory activism and uh, um, the uh, war crimes tribunals and things like that. So that's a whole different realm of discussion that veterans uh, have to live within as well. Probably good for a second episode, a part two of this. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, I, I have a hard time even unpacking that. Uh, uh, you could get a group of us that are very well versed with these narratives and experiences, and we're still forming week long conferences just talking about that, that, that type of thing. So, yeah, it's yeah. a it's a it's a complicated thing. Yeah. Well, I have about three more questions I'd like to get to. I know we're like even coming up on our time here, but uh first being um can you I, I maybe uh, for this particular episode can you give us what drove your passion towards southeast europe and what your research like can you give us a nutshell of sort of what your goal is with that um and then i have a couple other questions that are that are maybe a little bit uh hopefully a bit more softball than that than that one <laughs> after this I'll, I'll try to be succinct because uh, I, I I have tended to ramble on a bit uh, and everything, but no, which is fine because to... I love that's what I love about a podcast. We just get to sit down and chat. So you know, yeah, you take yeah, well, take the mic for as long as you like, really. Hopefully, I'm uh, I'm articulating this in a way that is uh, <laughs> on some level comprehensible to absolutely. Might, and I'm, uh, I I consider myself it. a complete layman, and this has been fascinating to me. That's why I feel like we could go for another hour. So, like, okay. yeah, what okay, I what, what great, I want great. is for our audience who's listening in to say, okay, we've we've really dived into this. Let's nail down just like brass tacks, like what your goal is in Southeast Europe. So I have quite the um, and th it's not meant to be a a a boast or anything else like that but i have a very it's just a state a statement of reality i have a very eclectic background so i grew up in germany uh didn't come to the united states until uh as an adult until i joined with the military after the military i did my degree in anthropology and then i joined peace corps hmm. uh, i did two years in peace corps and peace corps at that time you didn't get to pick and choose where you went you took a year to go through the application process and if you were successful they like Okay, this is where we're going. You're either going to Botswana or Nepal or Charlie. You're going to the Republic of Kosovo. And I was like, oh, uh, all right. And I consider myself fairly well versed on geography uh, and everything. And it still took me a second to kind of geoposition exactly what what that uh, what that those three words, Republic of Kosovo, uh, meant. Uh, and everything. And so that uh, that was my first introduction to uh, Southeast Europe. And that was about a decade ago. And I've never really left the region. I've never really left left the region. And this uh, this uh, preceded my um, um, what has coalesced into a uh, focus on uh uh, engaging war veterans from an anthropological or from an academic uh, uh, um, uh, positionality. And so um, that was definitely part of the 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 um, decision making process to situate and base my research in Southeast Europe, but also it is a very unique place in a way to understand and reflect upon veterans and veteran relations, and that's mm -hmm. really at the heart of what I do is looking at veteran relations or intra relations, if you will, and you have. Croatian veterans who fought Serbian veterans who are still considered 
nationality-wise, Croatian, who stayed mm -hmm. behind in Croatia. Many of them left for Serbia. You have Bosnia, where you had Bosniak veterans that were allied with Croatian veterans in the beginning and then started fighting each other for a while and then are now you know, depending on what veteran you're talking to, there's some different things happening there. But you also have Serbian veterans living in the Serbian part of Bosnia. Then you had one part of Bosnia that tried to split away. There were Bosniaks. They tried to split away. And the other Bosniaks went and kept them from splitting away. So it was Bosniak versus Bosniak, in a sense. Mm -hmm. You know, so it was a really, really, it is, not was, it really is a unique space to live within to encounter these veteran narratives to figure out what it means to be a veteran in some of these very very um diverse cultures um and it allows me to kind of reflect about back upon what the word veteran means and how we use it and how we can expand upon and push back against some of the very American or North Atlantic centric uh, narratives that come with uh, the term veteran. Um, we, we wanted to circle back around to what the point of this research is, what uh, what some of the goals are, what the, uh, the orientation is uh, for this. Now, so when I presented this work and that this, this research is funded by uh, the Research Foundation Flanders, which is uh, based in Brussels, Belgium. So it's public funding. It's 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 uh, Belgium is supporting this uh, this research, uh, as well as the University of Leuven. Uh, so when I pitched this to them, some of the goals that I wanted to uh, explore, what I was starting, the conversation that I wanted to start, was looking at how these veterans engaged the word veteran what their lives were like as veterans after combat, and then look at, in the very immediate sense for Southeast Europe, their participation in processes of peace or post-conflict dialogue or post-conflict uh, resolution. So in a sense, it was getting back to the basics and fundamentally engaging and asking questions of veterans before moving on to other scales of conversations or engagement where it's like okay now we have an understanding of how they use the word veteran now we have an understanding of veteran life in society after war now can we start having conversations about veteran participation in peace or the problems veterans encounter with participating in peace and uh yeah and so and there's also the food and the homemade uh <laughs> What's called homemade rakia. It's a um, uh, it's a liquor. It's very medicinal, we can say. Uh, but it's uh, a lot of times the best stuff comes out of Grandpa still, out in uh, rural <laughs> Croatia or rural Bosnia. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so all and it's it majestic. It's majestic country as well. I mean, mm -hmm. sometimes it is a royal pain in the ass to move around, but when you are moving around, it is absolutely gorgeous. And uh, it sounds like some of the uh, some American veterans might have a chance to uh, experience some of this uh, in Karlovac, Croatia. Uh, this coming year. Uh, we'll leave that for another chat, but uh, I'll just uh, put that out there. That's BBC and I have been talking uh, with some Croatian veterans about uh, orchestrating a visit and uh, in yeah, celebration we'll, 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 of we'll, veterans. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. veteran-centric, veteran-organized, veteran-oriented, uh, the whole nine yards, as the Americans say. Uh, yards doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to anybody in Southeast Europe, but I, I'm <laughs> guessing this is mostly an American audience here. So, Right, yeah. and that, and as we're speaking, this is like February that this podcast, February 2024 is when this is being released. So look on our Veterans Breakfast Club website for more information about a potential trip out that way for uh, this will be quite exciting uh should it all come together oh I, the croatians the croatian veterans are excited and as a veteran myself and as an academic working with veterans it's it's it's, it's really unique and it's it's really interesting to see it all come together so yeah but more more on that in the future you just mentioned something because this was a question i had and i'm i'm glad you just said a veteran such as myself because as we've been talking about the term veteran and the connotations surrounding it the meaning behind it how do you define it who do, who lays claim to it personally do you mind being called a veteran and what does that mean to you i don't mind being called a veteran no uh where i kind of have more of a complication uh with is uh i mean by rights uh you can call uh, be designated as a combat veteran and some veterans feel a need to uh add that on to um uh, you know, to complement that word veteran, in a sense. Uh, uh, and I, I respect that. I get that, 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 that there's a, uh, a perception of that needing to happen. But it's, it's also something that I encounter in Croatia and Kosovo and Serbia, where, you know, you ask the veterans themselves the same question you just asked me, you know, who can be a veteran? Uh, is the logistics driver driving, you know, grandpa's 1965 bw or skoda or not that uh, was the Hugo brand i forget now but uh with baked bread in the back up the mountain outside of sarajevo to the troops on the front line he himself getting shot at sniped at having to maneuver through the darkness so that you on the front line for that period of time have baked bread or something to eat basically uh and everything is he not a veteran or she not a veteran oh well yeah i guess yeah we would have to consider them veterans you know and so it's um once you start to poke around in this word you really kind of and this brings it back to myself you really kind of have to um reevaluate how you've kind of been using it yourself and how other people use it uh, i was reading an interesting conversation it's an ongoing conversation that's been going on for a number of years some kind of um uh blog spot blog conversation or um i forget the the, the technical term for it where it's like a vietnam veteran versus vietnam era veteran uh, you know, and so those types of conversations are very, very interesting to me, not that I'm a Vietnam uh, veteran or Vietnam era veteran, but looking at how the veterans themselves reflect on this and the conversations, and sometimes these are just absolutely hideous, uh, horrible conversations and comments thrown uh, by veterans at one another that is just really shocking to behold sometimes where uh, things just... Uh, fall apart over you know just uh, baseless name calling or the perception of somebody's woke because they're trying to speak in a 
more uh, nuanced manner or something else like that. So that, those conversations were really, really interesting, but very, very shocking to behold about who can be, what is there a need to say Vietnam era veteran versus just Vietnam veteran? Mm -hmm. And um, I would really like to hear more about that uh, as, as well. But you have these conversations that happen in Croatia and a lot of this comes in with the gender as well. And uh, this is something that we have in the United States where the, they have a push by female veterans. Uh, I am not invisible. Um, you know, and that's been uh, the, the kind of uh, the trope that the VA has embraced and the branding, if you will, that the VA has embraced to address this issue of uh, female veterans being uh, relegated behind or aside or outside the visibility of male veterans. Uh, and this is something that, you know, the United States is a patriarchal society, but Serbia and Croatia and Kosovo are deeply patriarchal societies. So the female veterans there have their own challenges that they have to uh, uh, deal with in trying to claim that term veteran and embody it and have it used by others outside of their own, by, by, by others within society, you know, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And, and the same idea, I think, is also may, people may have heard or seen, this is what a veteran looks like. Sort of change. Yeah, yeah that you have those stereotypes. Uh, yeah. And that's where we can circle back to Hollywood, where that's, and I'll, I'll just be, speak from a personal perspective as a, a veteran. Uh, I have a hard time watching a lot of movies these days coming out uh, from Hollywood, even ones that some of my friends rec uh, who know me quite well and will send the recommendation to me, oh, Charlie, yeah, you should watch this one. It's a great one. It's always, the veteran always has a gun under the pillow, uh, is not adjusted well to society. There's just these standard stereotypes and, and tropes, uh, uh, basically insults to the perception or the uh, the uh, projections of veterans in uh, pop culture or Hollywood or uh, the um, uh, now the, the the use of the veteran uh, identity or the veteran person, yeah, you know, in these different films for whatever purpose, you know, it might be some kind of biographical dramatization of somebody in Vietnam or uh, what have you, you know, and. Uh, so so much of it just reverts back to these very base um, uh, trauma tropes, basically, you know, and, and ignores the whole communities that veterans have built around them and interact with and sustain and the support we offer for one another. Yeah, are there issues with PTSD? Are there drug abuse or substance abuse issues? Suicide, veteran suicide in Croatia is something that is almost an unspoken of, if just barely known phenomena right now. And as American veterans, we are very aware of veteran suicide. I've lost several close uh, veteran friends of mine to suicide. And um, so there are things that are going on with this, but that's not the end-all be-all of the veteran in society. It's not the end-all be-all of veteran communities. You know, And I think that's really something that these... Uh, these movies and jokes and stuff like that are really kind of, and other academics are really missing out on as well. Definitely. For our listeners, is there a way for them to follow your research? Is there a place they can go online to, to you know, see updates on that, uh, see where it, where it ends up? 
Right now, I'm uh, having to pander to the academic community, uh, which means peer reviewed, uh, rather uh, technical, we can say, uh, pieces that are sometimes not uh, always uh, accessible, although the, the field uh, anthropology and academia in general is trying to work more towards supporting open access journals. But I do have a research website, uh, research portal, uh, if you will, and I don't know if there's a way that we can drop that in the comments of this or in the 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 description bar. We'll put that definitely in description down below. So yeah, if you're listening yeah. or if you're watching on YouTube, check down below. You'll see a link there. But if you type into Google uh, the Veterans Eclectic and Charles Warner, you should encounter my my research portal, and it's kind of a clearinghouse of veteran uh related articles uh where i've been publishing some of my research places where i've been and some of these different dynamics of the research but it's the veterans eclectic.wordpress.com or you could just do the the google search for it excellent thanks well, thanks for asking about that yeah oh. i'd like to get more veterans involved with then get some feedback on some of these uh different encounters i had uh because uh, most of my world right now uh, intersects with uh, veterans in Southeast Europe, and I but I try to keep a finger on the pulse of emerging narratives and issues and um, uh, discussions that are happening with American veterans in the United States. Well, happy to uh, get the word out, Charlie. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, for just an incredible, even just this went by so fast. Uh, and there's a lot really of things. That, yeah. yeah, there are a lot of things that I, I definitely did not even consider before having this conversation, but I'll carry with me moving forward. So I hope uh, as your research uh, continues, maybe we can have you back on, uh, you know, talk more about those questions that have evolved over time or that a year down the road, you're not quite at yet, but you've gotten to. So I'd be interested to, to follow up with you. I appreciate BBC and, and Scuttlebutt being able to participate, but I also want to note that uh, Veterans Breakfast Club, you know, I, that's that's really been an interesting and unique and engaging way for me to kind of um, listen in on some of the things that American veterans are talking about these days and what's going on and who's sponsoring what and who's being involved in veterans affairs and veterans issues. And so it's really been uh, interesting over the past, uh, I guess, almost two years now to follow along with uh, me for me personally, uh, awareness of uh, Veterans Breakfast Club and being able to uh, access it from afar. Unfortunately, time zones mean that usually when you do your talks live, it's about two o'clock in the morning for me. So <laughs> I usually have to catch it on YouTube, but that's all right. Yeah, well, sacrifices. Uh. Thanks for the plug. And that's exactly it, is that if you are listening in, you can find all of the Veterans Breakfast Club's events, our happy hours, our Greatest Generation live programs, this Scuttlebutt, our Lioness podcast, all on YouTube, all available for free on there. Um, you could go to veteransbreakfastclub.org to become a member. Uh, if you'd like, you know, send us your email address, send us your address. We'll send you one of our free quarterly magazines. But for the Scuttlebutt specifically, please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. And uh, you can always reach out to me, Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at veteransbreakfastclub.org with any thoughts, comments, questions, or even concerns. I uh, don't mind even getting a little bit of critiquing mail, uh, you know, here and there, just to hear how I can, you know, do better or ideas that our audience may have for future scuttlebutts. But Open to it as well, critiquing definitely. emails. <laughs> life of academic. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Charlie. Uh, really appreciate your time today, uh, and I hope to see you again. My appreciation as well. Thank you very much.
We're grateful for the support of UPMC for Life, a UPMC healthcare Medicare program. At UPMC Health Plan, their goal is to improve the health of their members. They can also help you make sense of Medicare, get the answers and information you need, such as how to choose the Medicare Advantage plan that's right for you. UPMC for Life offers a wide range of affordable Medicare Advantage plans, and you military veterans can save money and get more benefits with your Medicare plans. UPMC for Life has plans designed for veterans by veterans. The type of coverage you have from your service may help you decide which plan will be a good fit. If you have TRICARE for Life, UPMC for Life, PPO Salute may be a good fit for you. You can view plan options, including their prescription drug coverage, compare costs, and learn about all the benefits you get when you choose UPMC for Life by going to upmchealthplan.com forward slash Medicare. Thank you so much, UPMC for Life, for sponsoring the Scuttlebutt. Thank you for watching this episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Tobacco Free Adagio Health. Uh, Tobacco Free Adagio Health has been supporting the podcast for quite some time now. We've been so pleased to be uh, supported by them. They are dedicated to reducing and preventing tobacco use and getting the word out about the hazards of smoking and secondhand smoke. They're all about health, so they want people to quit. Uh, they have classes, nicotine replacement therapy, and a popular quit line, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. They also educate people, children especially, about tobacco use from cigarettes, cigars, pipes, chew, snuff, and other nicotine products like vaping. And finally, Tobacco Free Adagio Health advocates for public and private policies that ensure healthy places to live, work, and play. You can learn all about what Tobacco Free Adagio Health offers at tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org. Or you can check out the two Scuttlebutt episodes that featured Tobacco Free Adagio Health. We had a wonderful representative come on to the podcast, talk to us about all the classes and therapies that they offer. Uh, it was one, two wonderful conversations. So I definitely direct you to both of those if you want more information or just call their free quit line, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. Thank you again, Tobacco Free Adagio Health, for your support.